Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Keen On. Uh, it's always nice to see old friends back on the show. Eche uh, Temelkuren is um, one of the more distinguished people to have appeared on the show. She's actually been on a couple of times. She was back on in April 2020, uh, talking about, firstly, how to institutionalize solidarity uh, during one kind of crisis or another of COVID, of political crisis. Uh, she's also been on the show talking about how to lose a country. She's an authority on the disintegration of democracy, both in Turkey and around the world. She's also uh, one of the most active people on social media. She's been on it almost from the beginning. Uh, some people have voted her one of the most 10 influential people on social media. And I thought it'd be great to have her back on the show to talk not about social media today, although we may talk a little bit about that, but her original experience with social media and how it played in and out of her politics and her political activism. Uh, Eche is joining us from Germany today. Eche, welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be back on the show. So I know you're not necessarily a spokesman, certainly not an official spokesman for social media one way or the other, but do you remember the first time you you were on social media what 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 platform was it was it twitter or facebook or one of the it really was, early ones yeah it was twitter uh i didn't do much facebook for some reason uh but twitter uh i the, i remember the first night i used it it was there was this um there was a class action uh a, a legal case was going on and the young People, uh, students, university students were trying to get their voice heard. So I just opened an account and started this uh, Twitter interaction with people. And it was a you know good beginning, so to speak, because that night they were all released. Uh, they, they were supposed to be, they were about to be prosecuted. They weren't. Uh, so that was a happy beginning to Twitter, which now is called X in a very obscure way. Um, do you remember what year that was? Um, it was 2012 or 11. Uh, yeah, I think it was 12, 12, 2012. Was it then that you began to understand the political potential of Turkey? Uh, of, of uh, That was a, a Freudian area, not a... Uh, <laughs> potential of Turkey, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, ironically, actually, it was the potential of Turkey getting people in the prison. So everybody needed social media from day one. I think, you know, countries like Turkey, uh, that you know, mainstream media is under attack or under oppression, social media has been uh, much more popular. So when we were all on Twitter, for instance, I remember my European friends were not even aware of Twitter. Uh, so I, I remember that right before it became a political tool, actually, it was just, a, you know, friends talking among each other, a lot of insider jokes, uh, a lot of very close jargon and so on. So, you know, it was 
not necessarily a political uh, vehicle, uh, but then it became very, very quickly like that, especially after uh, Arab Spring, I would say. You say we all. Uh, who, 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 who is the we here? Um, we as in like people who couldn't find somehow their voice in mainstream media or people like me who are who have been kicked out of uh, mainstream media um and, and what... you had been a very prominent um columnist in a turkish newspaper yeah i was not bad i was the most read woman uh, columnist a political columnist um in in turkey for a while but then the, this didn't of, didn't, of course, stop them from kicking me out. <laughs> anyway, but many people, many women, many men, uh, many journalist colleagues, uh, they have been kicked out uh, because they were actually quite popular. Uh, and what they did immediately was moving on to uh, social media. First, they did blogs, websites, but they were all active on social media. It was as if if you're not on Twitter, you do not exist anymore. And it was also the way to say that I am not dead. Uh, like, you know, you cannot stop me from talking. You cannot silence us. So it was kind of, there was a, you know, uh, a little bit uh, revengeful or not, uh, I wouldn't say revengeful, but it was a little bit of uh, the stamina that comes from uh, being in opposition was there. So there was a lot of energy in the beginning in 2012, and then 2013, of course, Gezi uprising happened. First, the Arab Spring, and then Gezi uprising. Uh, so that was when Twitter became massive. So you were involved with the the protests in, mm -hmm. in Gezi. Tell me a little bit about that, and 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 how you see the contribution, both perhaps positive and negative, in in social media in the uprising. Um. The first days of Gezi well, was very, very yeah, small. That May in twenty third, May twenty thirteen. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I was just back from Tunis uh, then, uh, and I was in Tunis with the people uh, who brought down the Bin Ali regime. So I was already aware how social media was being used in our world uh, during the uprising. So when I came back, it was so. Uh, clear to me that same thing was happening in Turkey. The whatever you know, the, the the beginning of the uprising was very very small. It was just another, you know, environmentalist, let's say, uh, insignificant rather uh, protest. But it was very clear to me and to few other people that it was going to grow bigger and bigger, which eventually did. Uh, so in few days, it became a uprising that spanned the entire country. And this happened uh, thanks to social media. Because uh, <laughs> at the time, the joke was penguin media. We were calling the mainstream media penguin media, penguin media, because the mainstream media, CNN, Turk, Turkish, uh, Turkish CNN especially, we're showing uh, penguin uh, documentaries mm. constantly while the entire country was, you know, uprising. So they, that's why we call them penguin media. And, you know, since you couldn't get anything from that media, you were 
uh, on Twitter and trying to understand what's happening. And also it wasn't only getting the news, but also it was the tool to uh, mobilize people to, you know, to call for other activists, to call for other people to come on the street and help the protesters. And then social media was the, I, you know, I, I, I know, and I've seen people, I've heard people, like thousands of them, saying that those were the best days of their lives, even though they were not in Turkey, and even though they lo we lost people and many people were injured, uh, blinded, etc. Um, even though that was the case, I know many, many, many people who cried looking at their Twitter feed, uh, cried with joy, seeing that the dignity in the country was uprising, was standing up. So Twitter was, became very close to our hearts. I don't know if Elon Musk has any idea about this or if, whether he would like to hear about this. But for many people in my part of the world, Twitter is a, um, is a home, has become a home. Yeah, I was thinking of the issue, uh, Eche, of home, because I know your, um, your, your last book uh, was on Together, and you're very interested in the idea of home. Was social media, in a sense, a real place then in those 2013, 2012, 2013 years? Yeah, it was. I mean, um, now in hindsight, I can say this. Um, it was our digital home. It was like everybody coming in in the morning and asking each other, so what's up? What are we doing today? Kind of. So, and there, you know, friendships were born. Uh, people trusted each other. I think the most important thing about social media, especially Twitter at the time, and I'm saying this both for Gezi Uprising and Tahrir and El Kaspa in Tunis, uh, people decided to believe in other people, other individuals that they have never seen in their lives. All those logos, uh, New York Times, CNN, you know, uh, BBC, uh, and these logos are millions of dollars worth logos, didn't mean much for a while. And at the time when, you know, it, it was at the heat of the events, people found each other through Twitter and they had very interesting, complicated, uh, very humane ways of confirming each other's personality, uh, who he is, she is, and also if I can trust her and so on. Because it was important and when the protests were happening, it was a life and death matter sometimes. You know, which, uh, I am on the street, which street shall I turn to? Where is the police? Because the police was attacking. and. Your only tool was was Twitter and somebody telling you, a, you know, giving you correct information where there is no police or where about where there is police and where police is attacking. So, uh, you know, I don't know if I should say this, but you know, nowadays when I see that Elon Musk is changing Twitter's logo and there's this cage fight, you know, thing with uh, Zuckerberg is happening. Guys, we take we take these things seriously. I I wanted to tell them like you know these things are serious. You are running uh, a thing, a, a, a massive organization 
that can make revolutions, that can uh, make people friends with each other, that can create, you know, solidarity, comradeship, that can literally change the world for better. Come on, take it seriously. <laughs> this is what I want to tell since few days to uh, both of them, actually, because I remember, you know, since you told me that we have, we are going to having this discussion, we're going to have this discussion. I was thinking, yeah, it was serious. It was a home. Uh, it was a political home for many people, and it is still so, you know, up to a certain degree. And what they are doing with social media at the moment is making many people politically homeless, I think. Did it ever occur to you that, I mean, Musk obviously wasn't involved with Twitter in 2012, 2013, no. but it was still a privately owned company in San Francisco, a tech company run by people you didn't know whose politics you probably wouldn't be particularly keen on. Did it ever occur to you that this was bound to end badly? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I, I even wrote about it in How to Lose a Country. Uh, we are treating these places, these digital spaces, as if they are, mm, you know, uh, our common property. Public uh, space. Public property, sorry. Public property, but they are uh, private companies. And we are doing politics uh, in the back garden of some uh, company, actually. Someone's private garden. I felt like that all the time. And we treated these places like Agora, you know, the 21st century Agoras, but they are not Agoras. Uh, it is, there is always someone who is dictating actually what can be said, what cannot be said. And you know, there's always a plug uh, that someone unplug suddenly. Uh, I was aware of this, of course, and, you know, I was trying to make people aware of it as well. But what strikes me now, and since then, actually, since from the very beginning of social media, how come all these people who are actually creating the content, uh, who are creating the, uh, the, 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 the space, the, who, is, who are filling the space, who are making the space a concrete thing, how come all these people cannot claim their uh, authority? and rights to be in this place and to own the place actually it it, it always strikes me like that we're talking about millions and millions of people and they don't come together to say to let's say elon musk or zuckerberg that excuse me we own this place not you uh that would be interesting i think and i'm sure there are many people who are working towards this internet this kind of understanding of internet, this kind of understanding of web or social media. Yeah, that's what some people here are calling Web3. Um, mm -hmm. Some of these new platforms like Blue Sky, yeah. Mastodon. Have you tried any of them? Uh, yeah, uh, Mastodon I am uh, <laughs> trying now, actually, in a very, you know. Does it, do you think it confronts any of the issues you're talking about or is it just No, of course not. Of course not. Of course not, because I think, uh, you know, the seriousness, the gravity of the issue, uh, I don't know how many people understand this, but like, you know, every time in history, when the communication, uh, the structure of communication changed, the political systems changed. So we are actually, uh, 
you know, facing this new kind of fascism all around the world, not only because of crisis of capitalism, crisis of democracy, but also we are, uh, partly it is because of the crisis of communication. We couldn't regulate our new communication. We do not have the rules yet. And we are still, you know, operating with the jungle laws, so to speak. And that is why our politics cannot uh, be healthy, let's say, unless we take care of the regulation of this issue. And by regulating, I don't mean, of course, oppression or like, you know, strict rules or anything, but there has to be regulation. There has to be um, a sort of, uh, you know, basic moral requirements uh, and political uh, basics of the basic rules of the space. Otherwise, as we are now, um, uh, we will going to live in this arena, which we like to think as Agora. You mentioned Agora a couple of times in previous conversations, both on and offline. You, you told me that story about um, Greece, the Agora, and the smell of onions. Maybe <laughs> you could tell that story in the context of social media. Yeah, um, when Gizi finished, when Tahrir was over, uh, or let's say, yeah, let, let's, let me tell this through that. And when we were defeated, uh, we were suppressed, all that energy, uh, all that joyful energy uh, just suddenly, almost suddenly, soured. It became something sour and it became uh, self-flagellating, self-castigating, self-destructive, uh, sarcastic, cynical, and it shaped uh, the current uh, social media. And what I thought then was, and I still think that, <clears throat> when there is no political uh, activity on the street uh, with physical bodies, social media is nothing. Uh, and it is not only nothing, but it also creates the sense of being in a castle under siege. So as in any castle under siege, the famine starts, uh, the plague starts. And you know, all these things in political uh, terms begins when uh, the action in the street, street, when social media activity, political activity is not coupled with the action on the street, political action on the street. Uh, so Agora in that sense, uh, you know, this is my <laughs> Greek editor who told me the story. I was eating salad, Greek salad with onions, and I was going to give an interview. And I said, "Oh, I'm I'm eating onions. I shouldn't." And he said, "Baby, you're going." <laughs> he was a funny guy. Uh, Darling, you are going to talk about democracy. Democracy smells onions. You know, look at that agora. Uh, agora was, you know, in front of us, and he said. Uh, there, you know, people when they went there to build the democracy for the first time thousands of years ago, 
um, they were carrying with them a loaf of bread and an onion, not to starve up the, uh, up in the hill. Uh, so yeah, uh, democracy, communication, political activity, action. It, these are all real people and it doesn't smell, I don't know, uh, uh, these uh, room deodorants. It, it smells onions. How do you smell the onions on social media? You don't actually. You don't. It's just, you know... <laughs> I cannot keep on with this analogy, but I can say that um, when there is no political action, I think all that energy turns into something um, insidious and the, that cynicism and that, that uh, sarcasm is uh, directed inwards mm. to the people who are part of the political action. And we become merciless uh, towards each other. And like any defeated political movement, uh, Turkish people who were during there during Gezi uprising, or Kurdish people, many of them has gone through this. They blamed each other for the defeat, and while and they did this on social media, and. When you see that, of course, you lose your faith in politics, in comradeship, in solidarity, in political connection. Because so the, so the souring of social media is a consequence of the political defeat. Political defeat. So it's, some people blame social media. No, for no that. I don't think so. Social media makes it, uh, of course, easier. Uh, to trash each other because you're not face-to-face -face, uh, and also you are, you are you're aware that you're on a stage and you have to look cooler than the other. You have to look like you're not the reason of the defeat but the others. So this, there is this uh, illusional moral superiority uh, among those people who blame the others for, for political defeat and uh, we're not always questioning their moral superiority and who they are really. What did they do to earn that moral superiority? So, yeah, uh, it's an interesting... There's an interesting psychological war when political defeat is, uh, you know, certain. After that, the psychological war, okay, serves nobody at all. Uh, and instead, actually, it really damages your faith in political action itself, in communication itself. But uh, it also breaks you as a person. It silences you as well. Uh, social psychologist in the US, uh, H.A., have noted that in 2012, there was a dramatic increase in the numbers of people anxious and the rise of mental illness of one kind or another. Do you think that, I mean, not everyone, of course, especially young people were involved in the Arab Spring, but do you think there is a connection between the, so the failure of social media to affect political change and our new, what some people call our age of anxiety, age of, of mental illness? Um, well, I cannot, you know, I'm not very knowledgeable about this issue, but I can tell that 
technology without a worldview, without a without a political stance, without a political understanding of the world. That's what I actually want to say. Without the political understanding of the reality and without a political goal, uh, of course, media, social media, especially social media, can be can become a void, an abyss that people can fall into. And I think it's not social media per per se what's you know getting people <laughs> uh, crazy, but it is the lack of meaning in it. Uh, when there is meaning, such as, uh, you know, when in Tahrir, there was meaning. During Gezi, there was meaning. Or Black Lives Matter, for instance, there was meaning to communicate. When there is such a meaning in our communication, be it social media or, you know, or conventional media, then, you know, you know that you have other people to depend on. You don't have to go crazy, or if it, if you want to go crazy, you can go crazy with thousands of other people together. Um, so yeah, I think it's not social media; it's the lack of uh, moral and political compass that is making people a little bit mad. You mentioned Black Lives Matter. Do you see that in, in some ways, both in the role of social media and in politics, as being? the equivalent of Gezi or some of the other Arab Spring events? Yes, I think so. I mean, like, these things, I mean, like, of course, I, I keep saying that when we were defeated, when we were suppressed and so on. But funny thing about these, not funny, it's actually quite serious. Um, the most important part of these um, movements, actions, collective actions, is that they didn't maybe... Mm. they didn't acquire a you know very clear uh triumph political triumph but they changed the fabric of our communication after black lives matter now it's not normal to do things uh which were normal before like you know this a uh, tiny bit of racism is now became like, you know, the in, let's say invisible racism became more and more visible. Now nobody can say that we don't see it. It's only thanks to Black Lives Matter this happened. Or in terms of Gezi, for instance, we might feel like we were defeated, but it was only two days ago, three days ago, Erdogan was still a Turkish president. Um, or should I say dictator? Uh, Erdogan was saying, it was mentioning Gezi. And the fear in his voice was still there. And I know that Tahrir um, left a similar mark in that country's, in Egypt's history as well, as, as well as rest, in the rest of the Arab world. So these, uh, you know, political actions, collective actions, they change the way we think and they set a new reference system that terrifies the dictators and some, most of the time uh, makes us more courageous than before.
So yeah, they they they, they change something, uh, but there is uh, a more subtle change, yet more uh, lasting change. As I said, you're you have a, a very large following on Twitter. You have over two point mm. seven million followers. Um, as a writer, intellectual, journalist, novelist, you've done everything. How has that changed your own um, sense of who you are and your relationship with your, not followers, but readers? Are followers readers? Does, as a writer, does that affect how you work? No, I mean, like, uh, before Gizzy, uh, you know, I lost my job. 2012 and you know that you was, lost your job at a newspaper right yeah yeah uh and that was the time when i started becoming you know active more active on twitter and what i understood is at least then uh, the haters were following more closely than the readers and readers were not even uh, you know present in twitter at the time they became more present, of course, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, when media uh, deteriorated. Uh, but haters, you know, so that you know, two two point seven million. Some of them are haters. Some of them are bots. Uh, some of them not bots, but like what do you call them? Like trolls. Yeah. Uh, government trolls. So yeah. It's not everybody. It's not that everybody likes me. <laughs> Two point seven million. No, uh, but you know, lately, after I started writing in English, how to lose a country that is like two thousand seventeen, and now I'm tweeting in English more. Um, it is. It is of course somehow magical to know that oh, in the morning somebody from India will write about together my last book or and then in the afternoon somebody from Chile will write about the same book of course it is magical I'm like oh, this was not possible uh, I don't know 10 years ago what do you think of the term influencer there's um <laughs> there's uh, you know a lot of people write about the influencer economy and a lot of young people especially in the United States seem to be uh, arguing, telling their parents that their career will be as an influencer. Does that make any sense? Well, but like to them, because, you know, there is a very insecure position. First of all, you are working for this company, actually, let's say Instagram or Twitter. Uh, you're not really getting paid by someone. You are making yourself into a product. Uh, and I'm not talking about the mental health issues that can that this can cause, uh, but that thing that you are big on, like Twitter or Instagram, can just vanish like this. I mean, like, what if tomorrow Elon Musk says, "Okay, I'm unplugging this. It's over." What are we going to do? And that powerlessness we have has become their job these influ for these influ influencers. Their income, their livelihood depends on this very ambivalent situation. So it is. it must be a torture. It must be a mental torture. Yeah, Marx wrote about the proletariat. A lot of people now write about the precariat. It seems precariat. as though the social media economy is the heart of this precarious 
new relationship between labor and capital? The tragic thing is, uh, they're not, you know, well, this is the biggest political issue since the beginning of the last century, but they're not aware of their precarious situation. Uh, they do not know that they're precariat, actually. And that is, that is pitiful because as long they might think that influencers, as long as I put this makeup on, as long as I have Louis Vuitton uh, as a shirt, whatever, uh, as long as I have a Louis, I wear a Louis Vuitton shoe, I don't look like a precariat, do I? But they are actually. And uh, their life is you know, holding by a thread. And that is, that is so pitiful, pitiful. Yeah, we might, if, if Marx was around now, he might write, you have nothing to lose but your Louis Vuitton shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is a lot of money, by the way. It's not like uh, chains. <laughs> yeah, golden chains. Well, finally, uh, uh, HS, real honor and pleasure as always. You mentioned Elon Musk a couple of times. You retweeted something that Musk wrote about Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah. Um, is there any hope left? I mean, Musk seems to be changing the name of Twitter to X. Do you hold any hope in Twitter where you're still active or X, whatever you want to call it? Uh, I am not a big fan of psychologizing the political uh, question. Obviously, Elon Musk stands on the opposite corner from me when it comes to class issues when it comes to politics but sometimes i cannot not think that wow this guy is so lonely how lonely can you be with all this money by the way yeah. and you know just say things on twitter at like i don't know three o'clock in the morning that is a very very miserable life probably and I'm not saying this sarcastically or cynically. I really say, I'm saying this like, you know, as a human being, this is, this is misery. This must be miserable. Um, the new thing in the world, or it's not that new, but I am kind of getting to know this world a little bit more. Andrew, there are now very rich men in this system and they're looking for meaning because they know that this is meaningless, what they're doing. And in order to generate meaning, they are calling intellectuals and they are trying to form a circle of intellectuals around them, philosophers, you know, journalists, artists, and so on. And I call this Alexander the Great syndrome of the rich men of 21st century. And now they, uh, as being the new Alexanders, um, they are creating these circles of Aristoteles. They're Aristoteles, they're Socrates, and so on. And they are living in this illusion of that they can change the world and their business will become more meaningful and more moral uh, through the existence of this circle that they pay for. Uh, but for Elon Musk, although I find this pretty ridiculous, for Elon Musk and for his likes, I think they need a circle. 
uh, of people, intelligent people, who are not afraid to tell them that they are childish and ridiculous. This is what I feel. I'm like, come on, who are you to say this to Bernie Sanders? Yeah. Oh my God, did I write that? <laughs> I forgot that I wrote this. Yes, good for me. You wrote, uh, just to be clear for people who are listening. Uh, I know, I just... I, I just uh, this was in a response to something that Musk said about Sanders. I keep forgetting that the idiot below, idiot below being Musk, is still passing as human just because he has unnecessary amount of money. Oh my God, the guy still lets me live on Twitter <laughs> and have a blue tick even. <laughs> He's so generous. 